0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Ubuntu Podcast.
1: What's up, everyone? This is Henel Kiyoma from the Ubuntu Podcast. This is part two of our 2020 review. This time, we'll be doing a 2021 preview. I'm joined again with my co-host. Why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves?
2: What's up? How's it going? Natty Bulcho in the building.
0: I was waiting for you, Natty. I was like, you know, let him him get him out. Bring him out. Bring him out. Hey, everybody. It's David, DJC, however you want to call it. That is I
1: awesome thanks so much guys now here at ubuntu we want to reiterate our mission that we aim to create a radically thoughtful space for the african diaspora to deeply explore how we can create sustain and struggle to achieve genuine community and solidarity across the world now in our part one we discussed a review of 2020 our thoughts and what we believe are some of the biggest trends on the african continent in terms of economy society and politics of everything that's going on now this will be a preview of 2021 some of the things that we're looking forward to and some of the things that we expect to see across the continent and across the African diaspora overall. But before that, we're going to hand it off to the one and only Nazi Bull Show where he will do his Africa in the News segment. Go ahead Nazi, take it away.
2: As the first COVID-19 vaccines have been administered in the UK, this Africa in the News will focus on how the vaccine will be distributed throughout Africa. Obviously, this will bring about a ton of moving parts, and many are wondering who will take on this logistical nightmare to transport and distribute the vaccines once they are available. In the States, we've been talking about about Pfizer and Moderna as the main companies that have been working on a vaccine. Well, China is also working on a vaccine with five vaccine candidates at different stages of the process. Uh, Actually, President Xi Jinping mentioned that once approved, vaccines will be made a global public good. Well, Africa uh, is eagerly awaiting, and Ethiopian Airlines specifically has announced that they're stepping up to the plate to support the logistics. They have launched a cold chain air freight model, that was a mouthful, to transport the temperature-sensitive medications, including a potential COVID-19 vaccine. A few months back, Ethiopian Airlines successfully supported the transportation and distribution of essential PPEs across the continent with the CEO, uh, Toelde Gabramaryam, stating that the airline will, quote, be at the forefront to further discharge their responsibility in the distribution of the vaccine across the globe. To support this process, the airline has partnered with a K-NOW Smart Logistics Network, which is the logistics arm of Chinese Alibaba Group. So how is this going to work? Well, the freighters carrying medicines will depart Shen in China twice a week to be distributed from Dubai and Addis Ababa. These planes have been specially equipped with a temperature control system to monitor the cabin's temperature in real time. Additionally, the massive 54,000 square meter terminal in Ethiopia has been updated to include compartmentalized storage facilities with temperatures between negative 23 and 25 degrees Celsius, which is the ideal temperature range uh, for storing the vaccines. Ethiopian Airlines has also dedicated 12 cargo aircraft and reconfigured an additional 25 passenger planes to respond to the anticipated high demand. So as the vaccine begins to roll out globally, it'll be really interesting to see how resources are distributed across Africa and we'll be sure to update you as the situation progresses
0: all right all right all right um, thanks for that awesome african the News segment natty okay so today we're going to be taking a look forward at 2021 for those who have not tuned into part one of this episode our year in review make sure you do that after you listen to this one and that episode we talked a lot about what what was really in a momentous year for Africa and the african diaspora and we want to talk a little bit more this episode about how do we want to take all that and then look ahead and think about what 2021 can bring us as a united people and so i'm going Turn it over to each of us. We're all going to do a little bit of a round robin and we're going to answer some questions about what's happened in 2020 is going to shape what's happening in 2021. So let's dive in. I think Hannah you're teeing us off with our first little question. So, you know, bring it to me. I got it.
1: Awesome. Sounds good. So guys, let's start here. If we had to use one word to describe our hopes for 2021, what would that be and why? What do you guys think?
2: For 2020, the word that I had was resilience and seeing how people have been able as a society and individuals to bounce back in a tough year. And so for 2021, you know, I think there were a lot of things that might have been lost in 2020. And for 2021, my word would be renewal. And the reason for that is I'm hopeful about about the year ahead. I'm hopeful that it'll be one in which things that might have been lost, things that might have been forgotten, things that might have had to be put on pause can be restarted, right? And and people can renew, whether it's renewing their hope in their, their goals and their future, whether it's renewing, just their optimism, right? Whether it's renewing society, right? I think society is being renewed and reimagined. And we'll talk more about what that reimagination looks like. I know people have called this period we're in right now the new normal, but I I really think it's almost like the next normal. I, I saw that in a couple of reports I was reading and I like that term calling it the next normal. And eventually the next normal we'll just call the normal, right? It'll be our society. It'll be our day to day. And so for me, the, the word that really strikes me is renewal. Um, I think there's a lot that will be changed in, in, in this year upcoming and hopefully it'll be good.
0: I think for me, for those who listened and obviously you all know for my 2020, my word was illumination or illuminating. 2020 was a very illuminating year because there were the peeking behind the curtains of the systems and the institutions that have made what has been a colossally disappointing and disturbing year, those inner workings were really revealed. And I think for 2021, my word for that year is reckoning. I honestly would make it two words and say, the reckoning. Because I think what has been disclosed to the public and what has been elevated in public conversation, not just in the U.S., but in all across the Americas, in Africa, in every continent of the world, we're talking about real mass inequality, real mass oppression. We're talking about our systems at the highest level of governance, failing many, not serving all, being motivated by things that are not founded in democratic principles. Those things have come to the surface and they have existed exactly Exacerbated the um, grave consequences of a global pandemic, of a national and in an international crisis, and have made the, the conditions that have been so horrific really pronounced and have made the suffering of some even more pronounced because of the way these systems have been constructed. And so I think this year, upcoming 2021, is the reckoning. We're going to have to decide, are we going to truly act on new values, act on new principles, act on new morals, make this a real, safe, fair, just world where everyone has access access to the things that are fundamentally necessary to thrive, or are we going to continue the status quo in our countries, in our places where power is preserved over the will of the people? And so that's a reckoning. We're going to have to really, it's a spiritual, it's a, it's, it's, it's as much political and relational and social as it is spiritual, as it is moral. And we're going to have to determine who matters and, and how are we going to show up and, and and really make that happen in the places we live.
1: Thank you both. I think those are really powerful words. In the first part of our episode, I described 2020 as being a quantum leap. And I think pretty similarly to what you guys have said, uh, Nazi with Newell and David with 2021 being a reckoning, I think 2021 will be a year of of reconciliation in a way. Um, Maybe that's wishful thinking, but I think the steps that we've taken The ability for us to understand the societal issues that we have, whether it's across the diaspora or in this country domestically, I think we're getting to a point now in 2021 where we will be able to reconcile things of the past, whether it be in our own personal lives or whether it be with societies and institutions that have wronged us and really come to the point where we can understand how we can move forward, kind of take that extra step in seeking change. So I think this will be a year where we begin that process of, of reconciliation.
0: Okay, let's take it a little further now. So we've talked about our words between 2020. 2021 so now tease that out a bit a little more Uh uh-huh and so I want you to give us your headline for 2021 how would you describe what you want that moment to be in a newsworthy kind of way
2: yeah I think that's a great question David why don't you uh tee us off man why don't you go ahead and give us yours you
0: know I'm ready you know I'm ready (laughs) (laughs) you gotta stay ready so you don't have to get ready okay my headline would be, so as you know, I, I continue to talk about 2020 as illuminating or revealing 2021 as like reckoning and like figuring out, okay, now what are we going to do about what we now can't ignore? So my headline would be, rebuilding what we've lost and, and building what we've never had. And just pretty self-explanatory but natty i really appreciate it your um word really talked about loss and 2020 has been a major year of loss and um i do believe 2021 has to be the stage especially particularly in the u.s we're coming into a new president who they're trying to liken like to roosevelt and the 100 days of his first presidency there's just a lot of momentum around what 2021 is going to bring in terms of getting us back to a place that we would like to be so i think that's the rebuilding what we've lost but at the same token we don't want to rebuild broken systems. You don't want to rebuild, you know, institutions that have never fully served. So it's also building what we've never had in concert to rebuilding what we've lost and saying, here's what we want to leave behind. And here's what we want to finally center and uplift for the first time and possibly forever. And that, you know, for everywhere. So that's that's my headline, y'all. What about you?
2: I think before we go into the next, one thing that you said that I want you to talk a little bit more about was what we do now with what we can no longer ignore because i think that was such a powerful statement and i haven't heard it put that way before but we all have a responsibility to do something with information that we've been given right and i think for a lot of us or for all of us ignorance really is bliss right if you don't know about something if you don't know that something is an issue it's the best yeah it's the best because you're just like you're living in like you know just fairyland everything is great but one But once you know, once you have been made aware, you now have a responsibility to act in some way, or, you know, maybe you won't act on it. But I think what we've seen from 2020 is more and more people are choosing to, in some way, act. On what they now can no longer ignore, and so could you say a little bit more about that as a headline? How do you think that will, like, I don't know, undergird the movements that we've talked about socially, economically, politically?
0: Natty, that's a really good question. Education is not an experience that happens in one in one setting, and I think we. are looking at schools as places where the masses are educated. But I think schools are really places where the reinforcement of education happens. Like we're conditioned every day about these myths and these stories about wh- what and who our countries are and what they stand for and what they represent. And so there has to be a culture of re-education and a culture of public education. I'm not talking about schools, but I'm talking about our national collective education as a people. And how do we take those things into the industries we are in? How do we really talk about what it means to educate in media? How do we talk about what it means to educate in, in the religious sector? How do we talk about what it means to educate in the places of business in in the, in, you know, and in, in the federal government and in, in public services, because that is that information piece where we know that things are not as they seem you know, many of us have known that now for the first time in 2020. And so I believe we have to then take that information and determine that we're willing to learn more and that learning can't just be, oh, well, it's for the next generation and I'm going to stay kind of, you know, emboldened in my ways. And I think that's the split that this country's experiencing. So part of, to be quite honest, Natty, part of my answer is I don't know. I don't know how to operationalize that ongoing education for people. But I know if we don't do it, we are going to find ourselves in a place where 2020 is not the most significant year we've ever experienced. Because I think there will be a real demise if we continue to foster and also inflame this civil discord and this uh, and the disinformation that divides us so uniquely. We have to do something with it.
2: Thank you for sharing that. I think it's it's a tough question, right? It's it's one of those things that we have to reflect upon um, as a society. It's like, okay, well, part of the question is the education piece. Okay, sounds like some people are getting educated. And now what are people going to do with that education? And that ultimately is an individual decision at the end of the day. Right, you can't compel people to like. You can't compel someone to move. Like their heart has to be moved towards change. Right, and so I'm very curious to see how it how it plays out. And you know, it really takes me into what I've been thinking about is my sort of you know headline for the year, which is from resilience to renewal, reimagining life in a post COVID world. So we've moved from this resilience. I'm hoping we go into a place of renewal in which we use those truths that we've now learned to reimagine life in this post-COVID world. And so for me, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that education that illumination that you talked about David and ultimately that reckoning is played out in all factors of society and I know we'll talk a bit more about each of these areas in a minute but Henoch, love to yeah love to hear your thoughts as well what, what what's what got your got your attention what's your headline for the year man yeah
1: man I think you guys elaborated all of that really well and I think for me it would be reprioritizing what really matters and in twenty twenty. We took, you know, the quantum leap. We took those large steps. And then in 2021, I'm seeing us entering that, that stage of reconciliation. As we enter that period of reconciling things, we're also reprioritizing what are the things that really matter. You guys have talked about once we learn new things, our ability to, to not take action changes. Like we have to act and, you know, we feel compelled to act as well from our heart. And so when we enter in the stage of, of the reckoning and the renewal, we also need to take a look and see like what really matters. Matters, whether it be in our own personal lives but even from a societal standpoint that could mean governments reprioritizing their needs what they're focusing on let's say like a government budget maybe it's reshifting a focus on let's say defense or you know military spending and then refocusing on educational programs or you know social development programs and and really restructuring things according to the needs of our society so that's why I think really reprioritizing and getting to the place where we, we focus on what are the things that really matter to us be important as well
2: yeah, I think that's great. Thank you for sharing that, Hanok. And actually, I want to bounce it right back to you, man. As we've talked about some significant developments in 2020, now we want to look forward, right? Look ahead, project. What do you think are going to be some significant things that'll come out of 2021? What should we what should we be looking out for from, from your perspective, kind of looking at political landscape, Hanok?
1: Yeah, I think looking at the political landscape, uh, whether it be in Africa or the diaspora, I, I think we're going to continue to see real steps towards change from, you know, social justice uh, component. We're going to see real change when it comes to reforming political institutions. We see a, a real challenge with democracy on the continent, whether it be through elections and freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. But I think heading into this year, we're going to really enter into this sort of period where we're really going to see whether things will succeed. I'm thinking about Ethiopia as an example. Uh, we didn't mention it in the previous episode, but Ethiopia is a country that has really gone through so many things politically and that's affected the society overall. If you look at the reform that were made by the Prime Minister, Dr. Abiy Ahmed, back in 2018, we've seen how there have been so many challenges really in that process, and we've seen how many people see the country slipping back into an authoritarian direction, but then you also see folks who remain optimistic, who think that the Prime Minister has good intentions and that he really does want to see democratic reforms take place. But adding into all of that, you can see how just in Ethiopia, as an example, all the challenges that are there when it comes to building a democracy. If you look at the history of the country overall, we've never had a democratically elected government up until this day. The elections that we had in the past have been, at best, controversial. We've had allegations of fraud, and we've seen the way in which position has been intimidated in the past. But then we also see the, the questions that are being raised by the Ethiopian people as it relates to, you know, what is the best way that we should be governed in a country where there are multiple ethnicities? Right now, we're under an ethnic federalist state. We're different provinces are being governed based on ethnicity but then now we're seeing a real divide between people their understanding of what does it mean to be an Ethiopian and then how that reflects in the way they believe they should be governed so you see one aspect of people who believe in the sort of unitary state under one sort of centralized government and then you also see on the other side how many people believe that my ethnicity and my culture needs to be represented um, equitably and for that reason I believe that we would be best if we're given more autonomy or that we would thrive better if we were given more of an ability to live under our own customs and traditions um, while also being part of the larger country overall. So you're seeing that real gap from a political and societal standpoint in terms of how can we be governed? How can we really live together but then also have our needs and grievances really respected and honored as well.
0: I appreciate you lifting that because there has been so much political turmoil, social turmoil, encapsulating Ethiopia, and I would argue really the horn of Africa. And so I think this is an important time to look at that region in Africa next year like we want to keep our eyes on it and then what that means for democratization around the continent and transfer of power and all that stuff is really important i think one of the things and this is like the gold question for this for this episode because this is the forecasting and i will say we are a podcast we center around african stories voices but particularly african diaspora and i think one thing that we really are going to want to keep our eyes on next year is black communities in the americas and so i'm barring not barring because, you know, I don't want to discount black folks in the U.S., but that is the dominant narrative. I'm really talking about black people in Central America, black communities in the South America who often get a backseat in these conversations. But what's so important is that there is such an incredible growth groundswell of local movements taking place all over the Americas that are removing far-right kind of governments, challenging the tenets of dictatorship, democratically electing people who are going to push forward ideas around socialism and things that we just haven't really been able to see really work, you know, in the past generation. And so Black communities particularly are at the center of that. I want to talk about Brazil really quickly for a second. Many people may not know Brazil is the second most populated country of Black people in the world, following Nigeria. Over 50%, about 57% of Brazil is Black. And that has a lot of sliding and relative meaning in Brazil. And a lot of countries in Latin America have very ambivalent, convoluted ideas around race because of the history of slavery and because of their own perceptions as post-racial and mixed countries where there are no color and we don't see things. And that's commonly a a refrain that's talked about, you know, like, we're not like the U.S. In the South Americas, we really are post-racial. But the disparities surrounding Black people in those countries, I want to talk about Brazil specifically, are, are, are very similar to what we see in America. And other countries where it's very obvious that there is racial inequity in society. And so one of the great things that's happening in Brazil right now is that I would say for the last couple of years, but this year, particularly Brazil had an election. You know, we ain't the only ones, as Hinnock mentioned in our last episode, that have had elections this year in the US. But Brazil had an election that saw for the first time ever, there were more black candidates who ran for elections than white candidates in the country. And Black women particularly, they make up over a quarter of the constituents of that country. But up until this election, we're only 5% of the electorate. So we talk a lot about in the U.S. that there's these Black women that are coming out of the woodworks and they've been organizing and they're being pushed. That is a global phenomenon. This year, Black women make up now 14% compared to just 4% of electoral positions in Brazil. That's over a 10% jump. And they are taking seats in local city councils. They're taking seats in larger national representative bodies. They're running for mayor. And Black women particularly are showing up in major forces, even when they don't win. They are stoking the consciousness of politically disenfranchised people in Rio de Janeiro and Salvador and all these other major urban cities where Black people are four or five times more likely to be victims of lethal violence, bringing up conversations around what healthcare needs to look like because we know Brazil is one of the most problematic and struggling countries concerning COVID right now. In Brazil, Black Brazilians, Afro-Brazilians are four times more likely to die from COVID than white Brazilians. These are the conversations that are coming into the forefront. And we already know for those who study IR, Brazil is a major geopolitical player. Brazil is a super country. Brazil is a place to look out for because of its commerce and its industry and, and all these other things that it contributes to the world. And black people are a majority of that country but they've been historically disenfranchised. There is now electoral power taking place all over the country to rewrite that story. I think that's something to really look out for. Brazil is an example of that. Venezuela is a com- as an example of that. Colombia, which we did in Africa in the News segment, is an example of that. We want to look out for what those people are doing and what those Black communities are doing to restore their countries to, to places that they've really never seen. And then I will also say, the central americas really the devastating impacts of the climate catastrophe no one's talking about that we're not talking about all the hurricanes that are that are flooding and disproportionately displacing and ruining communities of color you know throughout the central america throughout the west indies throughout jamaica barbados and those are creating and will create climate and environmental refugees that will disproportionately impact Black people at a time in our country where we're reimagining what immigration looks like. And many don't know this, but immigration Experiences for Black migrants in America is far worse than uh, the non-Black migrants, and Hinat kind of talked about that in your Africa in the News. So I think we're going to really need to pay attention to what's happening to Black people all across the Americas, and really climate catastrophe. We are seeing Africa, particularly the climate catastrophe that is ru- that is ruining income, that is destroying assets, that is forcing people to move. It's exacerbating violence and conflict. Because it's destroying livelihoods from the floods and the cyclones and the pest infestations, like that's destroying the the community infrastructure of millions of African people in multiple countries all over the continent. So Africa can position itself as a major leader in climate change, and many are already doing a lot more things progressively than these other what we would call Western countries. Meanwhile, Africa only consumes two percent of the world's coal, but is now expected that they have to curtail their development for the greater good of, you know, the other 12 countries that have been destroying the earth for the last 200 years. Whole another conversation. But I think Africa is going to do some amazing things around climate change next year. And because they have to, because if not, we will experience the brunt of climate catastrophe. So Those are some things I would say to really look out for, for, for 2021.
2: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, you you took us through a lot of different examples, both of you did. And I think that it, our, our goal behind this has been let's take a look at the year that we've had and then let's see some spots, some trends, right. And then carrying into the next year, let's identify opportunities that we see or, or areas that we think are important to keep in mind, because I think it's always important to have a forward looking mindset, right. Whether it's the societal, or with a political landscape that Henok touched upon, or kind of that societal commentary, David, that you provided for the diaspora globally, right? And what this new reckoning almost will look like, I think that it's important for us to consider. And just to kind of round it out, took, you know, kind of, again, the economic perspective. And so I really had just a few areas that I'll share briefly. And I did some research uh, looked at a you know a global report by you know professional services firm McKinsey and Company, and they really looked at in a post COVID world, in a next normal, right? How can we potentially reimagine what Africa? could look like. So there's three really areas that I'll just touch on. They had nine or so, but I'm really going to touch on three that stuck out to me. The first was the acceleration of digitization on the continent. They interviewed someone named uh, Sacha Poignonek, who's a co-founder and CEO of Jumia, which is a African e-commerce platform. It's a growing um, platform and one that some people are calling potentially like the Amazon of Africa in the next five to 10 years. One thing that this co-founder mentioned is that a lasting impact of the crisis could really be a change change of mentality to transacting and paying online and hoping that because everyone's been at home and for those who have the ability to access you know, online resources and mobile payments and things like that, that has become more of a trend over the last eight, nine, 10 months. And so there's the hope that that will spur on an increase overall in the digitization right, of the continent and how people begin to transact, you know, especially through e-commerce. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to really touch on is African countries should also begin to to think about how to upskill their citizens with the digital tools to thrive in this next norm, where digital skills are, are key. How do governments, right, take a leading role or private, you know, private sector take a leading role in upskilling its employees to fit into, to adjust to, and to, to to lead in certain areas, this next normal. So there's that, the acceleration of digitization on the continent. Secondly, I, you know, I think another really important thing, and we touched on this in the last episode, was that due to some of the... Challenges with debt to GDP ratios, financing, and and heavy interest rates from external loans. Are there areas where African economies can become self reliant? Uh, and, and one area that was identified potentially was um, in African manufacturing. And you know, COVID has really led to a reshaped and more resilient manufacturing sector. While it's been while it's been a challenge for the continent. It, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the beginning of the crisis, there were several African manufacturers across the continent who really stepped up to produce essential medical supplies. And there's been projections from that report I was referencing earlier, that this opportunity may contribute around one to one and a half billion dollars to the continent manufacturing output. But beyond the, you know, the, the numbers, it really is a demonstration of the potential that Africa has to be self-reliant and its own, you know, internal entrepreneurialism and, you know, innovative capacity. And down the line, I think one thing to look at in this vein is regional kind of regional networks, regional trade agreements that that can be put into place, local supply chains, and like just internal logistics within the continent. So really what I'm talking about is how can we, you know, produce, sell, transport, and put into, into effect Different equipment, manufacturing equipment that is African built and and sold, uh, you know, across countries and in the region, and something that Gozi okonjo iwalia said who was a former finance minister of Nigeria, was that this crisis has shown that globalization may have actually led Africa to over-rely on global supply chain. As this has been the time of contemplation and thinking, this time really will provide an opportunity to rethink how those supply chains work overall um, and how can countries, right, meet internally their own basic needs. So I think that manufacturing will be really interesting to see how Africa really grows in that space in, in the year ahead. And then lastly, one one last thing I'll share is the opportunity for a more active government and economy and also, you know, really like a stronger social contract between government and citizens. And what do I mean by that? So there has been an increase in public-private partnerships, really just the government working with industry to really s- to work to solve some of the challenges that we've been seeing from this this season and, and, and the difficulties of COVID. And, you know, government has had to find new ways to attract invest, and private sector participation has been, you know, a key you know key source and delivering on you know, on critical project for the citizens across the continent and i think moving forward a growth in public private partnerships is something i would i'd like to keep an eye on and even more beyond that i think because of covid we've seen that Citizens have had an increasing reliance on their government by factor of difficult economic positions that they've been in that they've been put into, and so this has resulted in you know governments needing to really provide drastic interventions to strengthen um, you know social assistance and and really help their citizens. And citizens have also become, interestingly enough, accustomed to more transparent communication from their government and this is something that the report mentioned as well. They cited an example in Morocco where the government has shared daily online and televised updates of coronavirus cases. Kenya and South Africa have done similar things with bi-weekly presidential press conferences just kind of giving updates on the state of, you know, state of the nation as it relates to COVID. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see how economically the government takes, you know, even more of a role in working with private business to serve its citizens. And I'm curious to see how the government, you know, just at a broader level, responds to that social contract, right, that responsibility they have to serve their citizens, given how transparent some of these countries have been with their citizens as it relates to COVID. I'm wondering, will that will that continue to play out in other areas? Is it just a matter of the circumstance currently that they feel they need to do that? Or will this lead to a long term trend where citizens now demand more of their government officials and demand more of their government and this trend of transparency continues. Um, because now if, if we can add transparency into the mix, in a continent that has already has been growing, obviously been slowed down by COVID, but has been growing economically, has abundant finan- uh, has abundant natural resources and has now a citizenry that is hoping to be more in a more you know active and responsive relationship with its government. There's just so much to be said about that. And, and I think could be, you know, these could be part of the keys to unlock the potential that we hope for and know that Africa has.
0: There's a lot of prospects. There's a lot of great things about what's happening. I just want to put that out there. And I know for those who might have listened to part one, you know, talked about some really difficult things. But like I think you said, there's there's always hope. And I think that's been a resounding value and statement that's happened from both of you all's reflections. And I just want to uplift everything that you've said, everything that you've said as well, Hannah. that there's a lot to look forward to in 2021.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for listening. This has been another great episode of the Ubuntu podcast. We hope you all enjoy a wonderful new year and time with family. Thank safe and sound and look out for some more episodes in 2021 talk to you all soon
0: yes everyone see you next year in 2021 fellas it's been fantastic what a season that we've had so far
1: thanks so much guys and wishing you all a happy new year